Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. When a pregnant 23-year-old mother vanished without a trace, Her family was left wondering where she could have gone or if something might have happened to her. And it would be a year before they got answers in her horrifying case. This is the story of Hannah Zayner Brim. Hannah was the youngest of two children belonging to Florida natives, Susan and Art Zayner, who met in February 1982 and married shortly afterward. Her older sister, Hillary, was adopted. Then a few years later, Hannah completed the Zayner family when she was also adopted at two months old. Susan, Hannah's mom, describes her daughter as, quote, a big part of our lives, a big personality, unquote. And the photos I've seen of Hannah seem to truly capture her fun persona. She had a contagious megawatt smile that is enough to make you smile back at the image. At least that's what I caught myself doing when I was looking at her pictures. She really did have an absolutely flawless smile. I'm looking at pictures as we speak, and it's straight up luminous. The four Zayners were a close family unit, always there for one another. However, that's not to say that Hannah's life was easy. She wrestled with drug addiction and mental health issues off and on for years, according to some sources. Eventually, the Zayner family expanded when Hannah met and married Chad Brim. The young couple had a son named Xavier, and in 2016, they were expecting a second child, a girl who would be posthumously named Nikita. Which brings us to January 2016. Hannah was going through a really tough time. Her life had been turned upside down and she was just about halfway through her second pregnancy, 17 weeks to be exact. She had also separated from Chad a month earlier during the holidays. On top of all of that, Chad had maintained custody of Xavier while Hannah moved out of their marital home to live in an extended stay motel by herself. Girl was going through a lot and I don't blame her for having a tough time. Now, for those wondering, none of the sources make it clear whether or not Hannah relapsed with her drug use. What is evident in the sources is that, yes, she was struggling with the end of her marriage, so much so that she cut out her family completely at the start of the new year. Then on January 23rd, 2016, which was an unusually chilly Florida morning, Art and Susan get a phone call from the manager of the extended stay motel Hannah was staying at. Remember, Hannah's completely cut out her family at this point, so it's surprising that they're getting this notification that her checkout date is the next day. 
but the manager can't get in touch with Hannah and hasn't seen her in two days at least. He continues asking Hannah's parents if she'd be returning to collect her belongings and to finish checking out. Immediately, Susan's concerned. Call it mother's intuition or what have you, she felt something was amiss. Susan attempted to contact Hannah, but the call went straight to voicemail. The phone was either off or out of battery. Susan then reached out to all of Hannah's friends and acquaintances asking if they'd seen or heard from her. But everyone tells the same story. It had been days since they'd seen or heard from Hannah. The Zaners are beside themselves, fearing the worst and wanting answers. This is their daughter and she's pregnant. Had something happened to her or the baby? They don't know, but they need to find out. Not wasting a single second, they jumped in their car and drove straight to the motel Hannah had been staying at. Right away, Art and Susan take note that Hannah's car isn't in the parking lot. And this gives them a fleeting sense of relief as they wonder, had Hannah left to do errands, maybe she'd be right back. They're not ready to call it quits, though. The situation still feels unusual to them because they're used to hearing from her daily, at least before Hannah cut off communication in early January. But even then, Susan acknowledged, quote, if she needed me, she knew she could call me and I would go get her anywhere she was, unquote. This just goes to show what kind of great support Hannah's parents really are and were in her life. She hadn't been talking to them for quite a while at this point, and she was really going through it in her life. And they were still there. There was no bad blood. They seemed to understand the ups and downs of the past addiction and where she may or may not be at this point in her life. And when something was going on or wrong for her, they were there. The manager let Hannah's parents into her room. And it's at this point, they know Hannah was in trouble. But there weren't any signs of a struggle. Perhaps more chilling, all of Hannah's personal effects were still there untouched, as if she'd left for a moment with the intention to return shortly afterward. Okay, I gotta know, what kind of personal effects were left in that room? Everything. Her hairbrush, toothbrush, toothpaste, all of her clothes. There's a basket of laundry ready to be folded on the bed. On top of that, the charger for her phone. Everything is still in the room. The only items unaccounted for were her purse and jacket. It was as if she left in a hurry and, like I said, had the intention to return. Art and Susan immediately call Gainesville Police Department and they let them know that their daughter is missing. Officer Nicholas Bird overheard the call go out over the radio. As soon as he heard that Art and Susan Zayner made a missing persons report for their daughter, He knew he had to help. It turns out he had known the family for years and years, and he knew Hannah too. So he knew that she would never leave without telling her parents. Investigators, including Officer Bird, arrive on scene. They too take note of Hannah's belongings in the room. Everything you'd think or expect someone to take when running away was still there. As I mentioned, her toiletries, her makeup. But something catches Officer Bird's eye. There's a small makeup bag that had been left on the motel dresser in front of the microwave. And inside on the satin lining, there was a string of numbers and letters written with Sharpie. It turns out those letters and numbers were for a license plate and VIN, a vehicle identification number. 
Investigators run the number and trace it to a vehicle driven by a man named Nelson Armas. Investigators went on to verify that Nelson was indeed someone in Hannah's life. They questioned him, but he went on to say he hadn't seen her in three to four days and had no idea where she could be. That's when Detective Tom Mullins requests an emergency order to obtain Hannah's cell records. Upon inspection, everything seemed to stop on January 19th. There's no activity on her cell phone or social media accounts. With this information, Officer Bird's gut's telling him that something bad had happened to Hannah. So he went to the family. Remember, he's known them personally for years and years. And he asked them, do you want me to lie to you or do you want me to tell you the truth? That's when Hannah's mom, Susan, said, you better tell me the truth. Officer Bird said, I don't think this is going to end well. Days pass and the Zayner family's desperation to find Hannah grows. And it's becoming clearer by the day that Officer Bird may be right, that something may have happened to their daughter. There's been no contact with friends, family, no social media usage, no cell phone usage. She's also 17 weeks pregnant and had recently separated from her husband. And that's when investigators begin to wonder if Chad had anything to do with his estranged wife's disappearance. Investigators reached out to him. He too was distraught claiming to still be in love with Hannah. He wanted to mend their relationship and raise their children together. But according to him, Hannah was the one having doubts about their marriage. He went on to claim that their issues, whatever they may have been, would have never prevented Hannah from seeing their toddler-aged son, whom he had custody of. He explained that Hannah was a good mom, but she was just going through some things. When investigators inquired about his activities or whereabouts on the 19th, he states that he was at home watching their son, but he didn't have a vehicle, so he was stuck at the house. And we all know as true crime consumers that the significant other, Hannah's husband in this case, is usually scrutinized by police. Investigators weren't able to find anything linking her husband to her disappearance, and it's not for lack of effort. Hannah's parents went on the record to agree with investigators. According to Susan, Hannah's husband truly loved Hannah and would have never even raised a hand to her. And now for a word from one of this week's sponsors. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Police continue to dig deeper into Hannah's last known movements. And that's when they discover her close friend, Abriana, Sara at noon on January 19th the day in question, the day she last communicated with people. 
They bring Aubriana in for questioning and she tells officers that Hannah dropped her off at work at noon. But an hour later at 1 p.m., Hannah sent Aubriana a text. Aubriana couldn't talk because she was at work, but she told Hannah she'd call her as soon as her shift ended. Aubriana describes Hannah as being upset and confused that day, but explains she had a lot going on. She's pregnant, newly separated from her husband, and trying to figure out what direction to go in life. When Aubriana finally got off work that day, she texted and called Hannah, but never got a response. And she never would again. Hannah's phone records gave investigators a new lead, though. It turns out that she had communicated with someone else that afternoon, a woman named Rebecca, who would be the last person she ever contacted on her phone. Is this Rebecca somebody that Hannah knew really well? Did her family know her? What's going on with this Rebecca? Here's what we know. Rebecca and Hannah knew each other from high school. The girls had lost contact but had recently reconnected, and they had made plans to meet up and run errands together. According to Hannah's cell records, between 2 p.m. and 2.30 p.m., there were several short phone calls between the two women that day, ranging from two to three minutes each. So police went straight to Rebecca's home to talk to her, and it's here that she tells them a wild story. According to Rebecca, minutes before Hannah was supposed to arrive, she noticed something unusual. There was a silver sedan parked on the access road that ran along Rebecca's multi-acre property. And there are photos of her property. There's a clear photo of the access road. It's a dirt road. And it's pretty far from the house, but it's a flat property. So you can see from the house to this road. Now back to the sedan. All four doors were open and it appeared to be abandoned. She went to check it out and was startled when a white man with an average build and dark hair and dark facial hair jumped up from the other side of the car. He told her, stop, we're having sex. And at this point, Rebecca's caught off guard and embarrassed to have walked into an awkward situation, but he didn't threaten her or anything to make her fear for her life. She just felt uneasy in the situation. Rightfully so. She didn't see who he was with, but also didn't want to stick around and feel even more uncomfortable to see who the person was. She headed back to her house, and that's when she received a text from Hannah shortly afterward. The text canceled their plans, so Rebecca went about her day. She didn't see the car leave, but when she looked outside a few minutes later, it was gone. Investigators are suspicious about the odd story Rebecca's told them, and I don't blame them. It's not hard to question such a bizarre story. I would be confused beyond belief. What choice do they have too? Rebecca was the last person to have spoken with her and she presents a bizarre story. Absolutely. But investigators begin to wonder if the strange man from that story and the cancellation that Hannah had texted Rebecca are linked. Rebecca acknowledges that she had, hadn't seen Hannah in years and didn't know what kind of car she drove. But when she gave the description for the car in the story, stating that it was a silver Toyota Camry four-door, investigators realized that it matches almost identically to the type of car Hannah drove. Based on Hannah's communication with Rebecca and the description of the vehicle from Rebecca's bizarre story, police began to wonder if it could in fact have been Hannah's car. Maybe Rebecca's story wasn't so far off after all. Rebecca agrees to go down to the station and talk to investigators on camera. 
And it's here that the gravity of the situation begins to weigh heavily on Rebecca as she wonders out loud if she came face to face with Hannah's assailant. The police have a sketch done up with Rebecca's description of the man. As police wrapped up their interview with Rebecca, they received a phone call that would lead them down another rabbit hole. Do you remember Nelson Armas, the man whose license plate and VIN were written in Hannah's makeup bag? Well, he was on the other end of the phone. It turns out that Hannah met Nelson briefly about four years earlier, but the two reconnected sometime around Christmas. The relationship appears to have been complicated and at times, quote, tempestuous, according to some sources. Both had estranged spouses, and Nelson had been ordered by a judge not to have contact with his wife after a domestic violence incident in October of 2015. He now claimed to have spent time with Hannah on January 19th, the day Hannah went missing. There's police audio of his conversation with investigators, and he says, quote, whenever you want to meet up, I'm okay to meet up with you, unquote. So he agreed to meet up with detectives and show them several locations around Gainesville that he had spent time with Hannah. Nelson claimed to have been following Hannah's story in the news and realized his account of that day could be vital to helping find Hannah. Nelson went on to tell authorities, quote, I feel like this is priority because somebody's missing, you know? So the sooner I can get this done, I'd love to help you out, unquote. And investigators were surprised when the married man began to discuss his secret romance with Hannah. He indicated that Hannah had serious feelings for him, but he wasn't looking for anything like that. He wanted something casual. He went on to explain to investigators, quote, I was using her as a band-aid, you know? I was hurting. My wife wanted nothing to do with me, so I just wanted somebody to be there. I never really intended to actually have a relationship with her. I was just using her as a crutch. I really hope you all find her like she's even got me worried, unquote. Nelson went on to claim that he had left Hannah's hotel room at 1.30 p.m. on January 19th after they had had an argument. He walked away from the hotel room on foot, but she drove up alongside him pleading with him to please talk to her. Eventually, he got into her silver Toyota Camry and the two drove off out of Gainesville on Highway 441. According to Nelson, Hannah refused to accept that their relationship was over, and she went so far as to slap him in the face. Nelson told investigators that he put his hands in his lap and tried to remain as calm as possible in this situation. He then demanded Hannah let him out of the car and began walking towards Gainesville while Hannah drove off in the opposite direction. At this point, investigators felt that Nelson was trying to be helpful. They didn't doubt anything about his story, but they wanted to confirm the details of his account. Nelson agreed to go to the station and have police analyze his cell phone data. He claimed that he had, quote, no other contact, unquote, with Hannah after he exited her vehicle. So investigators asked him how he got home, because remember, they had driven miles outside of Gainesville. That's when Nelson claims to have hitchhiked back into Gainesville with a trucker and then walked the last 13 miles to his home. But not everything could be verified by investigators. They could only verify everything up until the point where he claimed to have gotten out of the car. And they questioned, when you walked home, you said you walked by a Waffle House and a convenience store on US 441 at 53rd Avenue. 
But when investigators went to go look at surveillance footage for those businesses, Nelson was nowhere in sight. What I want to know now then is where was he? Police wanted to know the same thing. They were skeptical. 13 miles, Nelson wanted them to believe he walked that far in a single day. According to On the Case with Paula Zahn, it would have taken a minimum of four hours for Nelson to walk those 13 miles to his home. But that didn't match up with his phone records. His phone records said he got home in less than two hours. So why was there that big of a discrepancy? There wasn't enough time for Nelson to walk that amount of miles. Furthermore, the data appeared to show that Nelson had been with Hannah until minutes before her phone died. Things aren't looking good for Nelson. And now a word from today's sponsor. While he's answering questions in the interrogation room, Rebecca's just finished telling detectives about her bizarre encounter with the man on her property the day that Hannah went missing. Hannah's walking out of the interrogation room through the station and happens to pass the interrogation room with Nelson. And for our listeners, this station had multiple interview rooms. They were side by side in the same area. So it makes sense that she'd be walking out and happen to look into one of the rooms and see him. She stops in her tracks. And that's when she claims that the man in the room looked strikingly similar to the man that had been with the silver Camry near her home. And she becomes convinced that he was the exact man who had yelled at her. In fact, if you look at the sketch of the man that she had done with police investigators and a photo of Nelson side by side, you'd say it's the same person. So investigators confront him and they tell him that he's been identified by an eyewitness. But without physical evidence, there's no grounds for an arrest and Nelson's released. However, police didn't give up on Nelson as their suspect. They scoured his social media for any clues, and that's when they found a post Nelson had made on January 19th. He thanked his friend Stacy for allowing him to crash on her couch that night on the 19th, the night Hannah went missing. That's when police tracked down Stacy, who has her own story to tell. She acknowledges that Nelson stayed at her place, but also mentions that he seemed nervous when he asked for help. She explains that they met at a Walmart in Gainesville around 9 p.m. that night. When police pulled up the Walmart surveillance video, they confirmed Stacy's story. Right there on camera, Nelson's wearing a gray shirt, oversized cross, jeans, and black Converse as he walks into the store around 9 p.m. That wasn't the only angle investigators brought up, though. They wanted to know how Nelson arrived at the Walmart. The Walmart video revealed yet another clue. That silver Toyota Camry stayed in the parking lot for four days until Nelson returned. He was dropped off by a man in a distinctive El Camino. But this worked in police's favor because they were able to figure out who the El Camino was registered to and made contact with that individual because it was so distinctive. When questioned by police, the owner of the El Camino told them that Nelson had asked him for help getting rid of the silver Toyota. He ultimately gave it to the owner of a tow yard with very specific instructions saying, quote, when you're done taking what you want off the car, I need you to crush it, unquote. Time is now of the essence. Police raced the tow yard, hoping it's not too late for the car. Fortunately, the car hadn't been crushed yet and the owner was willing to turn it over to the police. It was quickly confirmed that the car was indeed Hannah's. Forensic experts processed the car searching for any evidence of a crime. 
And that's what they found. Blood on the left side of the trunk, as if somebody had been in the trunk of that car. Testing of the blood revealed it was in fact Hannah's. The horrifying part was there was a tremendous amount of blood, indicating there was no way an individual could still be alive after losing that amount of blood. Police were now convinced Nelson was responsible for Hannah's death. Armed with a search warrant, police descended on Nelson's home, where they found critical evidence in several burn piles located on his property. There were remnants of what looked to be Hannah's jacket, burnt pieces of floor mats belonging to Hannah's Toyota Camry. Police then arrest Nelson, and they're ready to charge him with Hannah's murder. But that's when another tip comes in. An informant tells authorities that while sitting in jail, Nelson admitted to throwing a knife, the possible murder weapon, out of the car. The informant goes on to say that he knows the exact location. It's an area surrounding an abandoned building in La Crosse, Florida. The map the informant drew led police straight to the blood-stained Smith & Wesson knife that had once been a gift from Hannah's husband. Unfortunately, analysts couldn't recover DNA from the blood on the knife, which had been found outside after months and months since Hannah's disappearance. But that's where Abriana comes in. Remember, that's Hannah's friend that she had dropped off at work the day she went missing. Well, she would later testify to two things. One, that she did see Nelson and Hannah together that day. And two, she would later testify that she had been playing with a knife she found in the center console of Hannah's car. And that knife had a defect that made it difficult for the blade to close. That defect let investigators know that this was the same exact knife the informant's map led them to. Nelson was officially charged with Hannah's murder and held without bond in September of 2016. While behind bars the day after the indictment, Nelson was an emotional mess. He confessed to yet another person in jail that he had murdered Hannah by stabbing her in the throat. Nelson told this new informant that he had snapped when he saw that Hannah had his VIN number and his license number in her makeup bag. He was worried she was getting too close and could potentially ruin his family or the chances of getting his family back. Remember, he was not allowed to see his wife at this time. Nelson went on to give that informant a detailed description of where Hannah's remains were. It's not to say that investigators weren't searching for Hannah's remains in the eight months since her disappearance, but now they had a direct location on where to look. Investigators conducted a 150-person two-day search party that combed the swampy area near Orange Heights for Hannah's remains. And on that second day, skeletonized remains were found in a wooded area near a creek and train tracks. And when I say skeletonized, I mean that they were partial and missing hands, feet, hair, and soft tissue. The bones were scattered widely in the area, and there were no personal effects recovered with her remains. The moment was bittersweet for investigators. They had all become emotionally connected to the case. There's a quote by Ben Tobias describing this moment, and I'm going to read it right now. Quote, Once word reached the command post that Hannah had been located, officers and searchers stopped to offer prayer and thanks for the discovery, unquote. I think that really gives us an insight into these investigators' emotions and feelings toward Hannah and her case. Like I said, they were emotionally involved. 
And they did believe these remains to be Hannah's, but it would take months for DNA testing to prove it. Three years later, in August 2019, after a two-week trial and less than six hours of jury deliberation, Nelson Armas was found guilty of first-degree murder. The defense did their best to damage the prosecution's case, stating that the multiple police informants who testified shouldn't be considered as reliable sources because they would be doing or saying anything to help themselves. And with that being said, there still was too much evidence against Nelson to prove his guilt. He wore shackles throughout the proceedings and remained eerily calm as the verdict was returned. Judge Philip Pena spoke directly to Nelson shortly after the verdict was returned, saying, quote, the jury's finding of your guilt and the facts and evidence presented in this case demonstrate clearly to this court that you had disregard for human life. And if that were not enough, disregard to the sanctity of Hannah Brim's remains. He went on to say, quote, I would be remiss if I didn't say the following. There is no mistake in my mind that Hannah Brim was pregnant at the time you committed the murder, and you knew it and didn't care, unquote. The judge's acknowledgement of Hannah's pregnancy meant a lot to her family and her estranged husband, Chad, because they lost two people. They grieve for two people. And I happened to stumble across Chad's Facebook memorial for Hannah. But really, it's for Hannah and Nikita, which is what he named his daughter posthumously. He misses them to this day. He posts about them frequently. And I think that that judge did them right by acknowledging that two lives were lost. If Justice Pena couldn't do it by the book of the law, he definitely did it with his words. Judge Pena then sentenced Nelson to life in prison for first-degree murder, with an additional five years for the theft of Hannah's car and five years for tampering with evidence for burning her body. The sentences are to be run consecutively and Nelson was credited for time served in jail while awaiting his trial. Two years later, in March 2021, Nelson appealed his conviction. He raised three unsuccessful issues on his appeal. One, the trial court abused its discretion in denying his request to represent himself at trial. Two, the trial court abused its discretion in permitting the medical examiner to provide testimony as to manner of death. And three, the trial court erred in denying his motion for judgment of acquittal. And that's the most recent information we have on Hannah's story. And we may not get any more. That's where we'll leave it for this week's episode. And until the next episode, you know where to reach us at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.